It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Hello, folks. Hello, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. Great to be with you. By the way, on TV, join us during the week, Monday through Friday, Fox Business Network. The name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. And if you can't make it at 4 for some reason can just uh, text your favorite nine-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. It's that simple. And right here, you can live stream us on the Internet for the next three hours. Use LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com, live stream us throughout the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. Our solar system ratings continue to improve. So... Big story this morning, big, 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 New York Post front page, of course, Elon Musk has released the entire bombshell thread on the Twitter censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop story. And I think there's more coming, by the way. Uh, These are all these emails of the internal flubbing and lying and uh, left-wing propagandizing. And by the way, let me add, a big part of this story comes from the Democratic Party, the Biden campaign, uh, putting pressure on Twitter not to publish this uh, revelation about Hunter Biden's laptop, which, of course, Tony Bobulinski, one of their original partners, had said was true in the beginning. And, of course, uh, they tried to make a case that there was hacking. This was hacking. Hackers put this stuff into Twitter, but that was not true. There's no evidence that that's true. And that all comes out in this Twitter stream, this Twitter thread, that has been released by Elon Musk to, I guess, Matt Taibbi uh, and some others. I'm reading a lot of Glenn Greenwald. I like Glenn Greenwald a lot. I'll read you some of the stuff here. Not only is there no evidence that the documents used by the New York Post were the byproduct of hacking by Russia or anyone else, Twitter's false excuse for banning discussion of the story, the New York Times has confirmed the laptop was left and never picked up at the repair store. In March 2022, almost 18 months after the election was over, the CIA, which invented the hacking lie, I mean, remember all those jerks? John Brennan and uh, Clapper, a uh, b- bunch of liars. I mean, Clapper, I don't know. He, he, Clapper has lied so many times under oath before Congress. It's quite remarkable. Uh, he was Obama's, uh, whatever he was, director of national intelligence. Brennan's no better, if not worse. Anyway, all those guys tried to make it into hacking. You know, they had 50 of them, some odd. Every damn one of them lied. This was all partisan stuff to defend Joe Biden in the last month of the presidential campaign in 2020. So uh, CIA, which invented this hacking lie, got what it wanted. Biden's uh, defeat. The New York Times admitted the materials from the laptop were authentic and the story of how the New York Post obtained them was true. And they go on. This is not done autonomously by tech firms. The censorship is being coerced by the in-power Democratic Party. 
who explicitly wanted more censorship. I'm just reading stuff from uh, Glenn Greenwald. Now, when you go through the uh, specifics of this stuff, I mean, you really, uh, you really, it's really quite incredible. The system wasn't balanced. It was based on contact. This is internal stuff. I mean, basically the story is you had this cabal of left-wing staff people at Twitter who were on the so-called policy side. Right. They were the ones who were responsible for uh, censoring, you know, looking for crazy, untrue things to keep off Twitter. And they're the ones who invented the lie that the Hunter Biden stuff, which is which is all about the Biden crime family. Right. It's all about the Biden crime family. It's all about influence peddling. Uh, from Ukrainian investors, from Chinese communist investors, vis-a-vis Hunter Biden through his father. You know, Tony Bobolinsky had said this. It's just that everybody tried to uh, make him out to be some kind of liar, I guess. But here's the evidence. Twitter threw the New York Post off of Twitter. Actually, through my friend Kaylee McEnany. She was the press secretary for the last year or so in the Trump administration, threw her off Twitter. And you get all this information from various uh, Democratic Party big shots putting pressure on Twitter to keep it off. And that's not the only thing. There's a lot of other things uh, as well. But basically, Twitter was overwhelmingly staffed by people of one political orientation, i.e. Democrats. There were more channels, more ways to complain. All this was open to the left. Republicans tried to weigh in and were rejected. The Trump campaign tried to weigh in and were rejected. As I say, Kelly McEnany tried to weigh in. She was thrown off Twitter. And the resulting slant in content moderation, uh, all these decisions became visible in the documents that uh, they have released. They have released this stuff. And, you know, Twitter took extraordinary steps to suppress the story. They removed links. They posted warnings that it may be unsafe. They even blocked transmission data. That stuff, you know, transmission data, direct messages that's used for child pornography. And uh, on and on. Several sources recalled hearing about a general warning from federal law enforcement that summer about possible foreign hacks. There's no evidence that I've seen of any government involvement in the laptop story. In fact, it might have been the problem. Anyway, this stuff has all come out. Uh, It's front page of the New York Post and on and on and on. But the point is that it's funny. There was a split inside Twitter itself. As I say, the, the social policy people who were in charge of the censorship, they were the ones carrying the ball here bunch of left-wing kids, left-wing children, you know, desperate for Trump to lose in 2020 and desperate for Biden to win. The uh, PR people, the so-called communications people, uh, weren't so sure about this and put up a little bit of a fight, but they were overruled. And then the CEO, Jack Dorsey, who in my opinion is a big jerk, uh, he didn't even know about it. 
Now, I don't know whether he absolutely didn't know about it or not, but it appears in this first round of email or of Twitter and email releases that he did not know about it. He later apologized uh, in front of Congress and he later resigned. So this is, a, you know, some story. Uh, first of all, hats off to Elon Musk, okay? Let's really praise Elon Musk. Um, so, so Monica Crowley, who was on the TV show last night, said the release of these uh, emails, these internal emails, and the uh, whole thread of Twitter censorship on the Hunter Biden laptop story, it, that's worth $44 billion itself. That was Monica Crowley's wisdom, and it's a great point. Uh, no question about that. But uh, Elon Musk deserves enormous credit for shedding light and transparency and accountability and holding to his promise that he's going to remake Twitter as a free speech social media platform. That is Elon's mission. Can he make a buck doing it? I don't know. I think he can. I think over time he becomes more inclusive Right? Both sides should be represented. I don't want to keep the left out. It's just that I don't want to keep the conservative right out. I don't want to keep anybody out unless it's completely off the charts. You know, Nazi-loving or uh, uh, you know, people who deny the Jewish Holocaust, crazy stuff like that. All right? I, I'd probably keep Kanye West out, but... I don't know about that. I mean, I I probably would. I sure wish Donald Trump had kept Kanye West out. But, I mean, that stuff, I'm just saying, let a thousand flowers bloom. Let it be a free and open platform. And it will be better. And I think advertisers will come to it. And, incidentally, an important point here, uh, Elon Musk met – with uh, who's a what's he from Apple, uh, Tim uh, Apple, I call him Tim Apple. That's actually not his name. It's Tim Cook. Thank you, Matt. Um, it's early in the morning for me. It's raining out. My sinuses hurt. But in any case, uh, Apple, Tim Cook never said that he'd throw Twitter off his, uh, their Apple apps. Never said that. They straightened that out. I know Tim Cook did a lot of business with him when I worked in the Trump White House. Um, I think he's a fine person. Um, socially, he's more liberal than I am. Fiscally, I think we agree. Love the Trump tax cuts. I'm just saying uh, that rumor was out there that Apple was going to throw Twitter off its apps. Not true. Elon met with uh, Tim Cook. Tim Apple's his, uh, his handle. I think it's his Twitter handle, by the way. Um, I've met Elon Musk a couple times, dealt with him in the White House. I don't really know him. Uh, but I sure think he's a fine person, a hero, uh, a libertarian a fair-minded person, and a genius. I mean, a brilliant guy. Look what he's done you know, with Tesla and SpaceX and all these things and now Twitter. He's you know, a, a genius. And if he's the richest guy on the planet, fine. I'm good with that. And he's using $44 billion to revamp Twitter. I'm fine with that. But most of all, all of this internal left-wing garbage is now coming out for the whole world to see how these left-wing Twitter people suppressed 
the Hunter Biden laptop, computer laptop story on the eve of the 2020 election. They suppressed it. And they had good reason to suppress it because it's a very ugly story. It's a story of foreign intervention, foreign influence peddling, and various forms of embezzlement. And it's the father, Joe Biden, to this day, continues to lie that he knew nothing of his son's business dealings. We know that is absolutely untrue. We know that from Bobulinski and others now. Hunter Biden used, obviously used access when his father was vice president. And then later, for all we know, and I want to make this point, for all we know, Joe Biden is either A, still getting money from these phony investment trusts that were set up with Ukrainians and uh, Chinese through Hunter and Hunter's brother, or B, is still meeting with various people. We don't know that he's not. I'm not here to say he is. I'm here to say I don't know. No one knows. And this is an area which must be explored by the new Republican House of Representatives. Jim Jordan and uh, Comer and whoever else is going to do this come January 3rd. We need to explore this. But what we do know is the pack of lies that somehow this whole thing was made up, that there were Russian hackers putting us on Twitter. We know that to be completely untrue. The New York Post, bless its heart, was right from the start. Right from the start, legitimate story, which is going to unravel over time. Trust me on this, folks. Now, would this have uh, influenced the election in 2020? I don't know. I don't know. I've seen polls that say 20 or 25 percent of respondents say had they known or been able to read more about the laptop, they wouldn't have, would not have voted for Biden. I've seen those polls, 20%. I don't know. Okay, I can't confirm anything. I can't confirm any polls. We know all about polls from the last election. Might it have? I don't know that either. The answer is, yeah, it might have. But the bigger issue here is you're going to have these influential social media platforms. Millions and millions and millions and millions of Americans, young and old, are on them. It's form modern, modern form of communication, much bigger than newspapers, much bigger than TV, much bigger than radio. So let's have some fairness and balance and honesty. Let us make it all about free speech, free unfettered speech. Even if somebody says something that's wrong, I think they have a right to say it. I mean, heck, look at Joe Biden. Guy lies on a daily basis, makes up economic numbers. I mean, it's easy. I'm not going to prosecute him. It's a free country. If he wants to lie, then I go on the Kudlow show every night and show the facts and show he's fraudulent. But you get my point. I want free speech, free speech. 
free speech, religious freedom, etc., etc. It's called the Declaration of Independence. It's called the Bill of Rights. It's called the American Constitution. And a bunch of left-wing children running these platforms, like Twitter, should not ever again be in charge. And the FBI should not be able to dictate to them. The Justice Department should not be able to dictate to them. The Democratic National Committee or the White House, blah, blah. You get my point. Nobody just, you got to tweet DNC, post it. RNC will post its rebuttal. These government agencies, FBI, CIA, Justice Department, weaponizing, weaponizing their authority in favor of left-wing politics is crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. So go to the New York Post today. Read it. Read it online. Everybody's writing about it. I mean, even the New York Times and the Washington Post, two years later, finally came around to acknowledging that there was such a thing as the Hunter Biden laptop and what was on it was for real. And this is a big problem for their hero, Joe Biden and his son, Hunter. Right? The Biden crime syndicate, as Newt Gingrich calls. We will learn much more about that. I'm going to take a quick break. But uh, this is a big story. Very big story. We'll try to pick it up over the course of this show with uh, various folks who will come on. By the way, later on the show, would be a great honor. Uh, my friend, Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel, will come on for a long half-hour interview. Uh, he called us, and I'm happy to do it. I've known him for many years, helped him when he first started out as uh, Prime Minister and Finance Minister. It'll be great fun. Arthur Laffer's going to be here. We've got a whole host of things to do. But the main thing is free speech. Thank you, Elon Musk. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you. So, time out from the Twitter fiasco. I just want to raise, we'll talk about this on the other side of the half hour with my great pal, Art Laffer, father of supply-side economics. But um, the jobs report yesterday I mean, on the surface, it looked okay with uh, 260,000 jobs, but it really wasn't okay. Uh, I'm not going to go through the details. We have John Carney coming up later, and he will share from Breitbart, a brilliant fellow, but he will share uh, some of the details. But inside that, you know, 3.7% unemployment, that's good, and the non-farm payroll is up 263,000, that's good. But the household survey, which is made up of smaller businesses, individually owned, family owned businesses, uh, that declined for the second straight month. Uh, 138,000 drop in November, 328,000 drop in October, a loss of 466,000 jobs. Now, it's the, the unemployment is, comes from the household survey. I don't think people know that. That's why it's so very important. And it is showing weakness. And uh, historically, it is uh, at turning points in the economy. It's an important leading indicator. So I'm looking under the hood. The other problem here, it's not a problem, but the Fed makes it a problem, is uh, blue-collar working folks had a good increase in wages, which I welcome. You know, good for them. 
uh, up seven tenths for the month and up uh, 5.8% for the year. Trouble is, uh, the Federal Reserve looks at that as being inflationary. Inflationary, and they're going to want to snuff it out. So the Fed may only do 50 basis points at the meeting next week. I think it's next week or the week after, but uh, they're going to keep raising rates and tightening the economy into a recession. We'll talk some more about this with Art Laffer and then John Carney. But I just want to say uh, there was no joy in Mudville uh, after yesterday's jobs reports if you look under the hood and at all the details. Anyway, we're going to take another quick break, and then the great Arthur Laffer, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, Ronald Reagan advisor, my mentor. He'll be with us. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And we bring in my great pal, Art Laffer, Chairman and Chief Economist of uh, Laffer Associates, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, the godfather of supply-side economics, my mentor and dear friend, Arthur. Thank you for doing this. We appreciate it. It's a great pleasure, Larry. Thank you for having me. So listen, I got two great headlines for you. Okay. One of them is Janet Yellen blames Americans splurging on goods for record high inflation. It's the consumer's fault. And then the second headline that's so wonderful, Democrats want a lame duck spending blowout. Is that the answer? Too much inflation is caused by too many consumers spending, and the medicine to stop it is a lame duck spending blowout? What do you make of that? Uh, it's it's very sad, Larry. But, you know, if I can, with you being the primary exception to this world, by the way, that I'm going to describe, is once you become an employee of a president, once you become there, you're an employee, not an independent advisor. And, and Janet Yellen is guilty of the old proverb that these people will rebut arguments they know to be true, Larry, in order to curry favors with their political benefactors. Mm-hmm. Now, Janet Yellen is saying things she never would say were she not in a position that she's in. She just wouldn't, Larry. And she's a good economist. She's a good person. uh, And uh, she's just under a lot of pressure by this administration to say things that really aren't true. Uh, they just they just aren't. And it's it's sad to see that. But by the way, it happens with all administrations over all time. I remember everyone in Nixon saying wage and price controls were great. Uh, you know, there you go. Tax increases will solve the problem. You hear him saying all of that stuff. And Janet Yellen knows she's wrong on this issue. And it, of course, is silly. Well, good for you. Bad for her. Good for you. You're yeah, very well, generous. You know, we, just, we just have to empathize with her, Larry. You know the pressures you have under, in, in administration, the pressures I had, and, you know, it's, it's, it's really tough. I never did that. Employee. I never, 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 never. I used to just say every now and then I had a few disagreements with my former boss, Donald Trump, and I would just say that to, when I did press opportunities 
that the president and I had some mild disagreements. <laughs> and that's the correct thing to do. And he let me get away with it. personality that can do that, Larry. He let me and, get away with it. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he had a great respect for you personally, as well as a friendship, by the yes. way. I mean, yes. you and he were close friends, and he didn't think of you as an employee. He thought of you as a colleague to be. And I, I know that personally from fact, and discussing you with him. He thought of you as a friend and a colleague much more than an employee. But some of the others, like, you know, we've talked about Mnuchin. Uh, we've talked about some of the others out there that have done things that you and I disagreed on. We wanted to have a payroll tax waiver yes. uh, rather yes. than the $3.5 trillion spending bill that Mnuchin put through. Yes. And, you know, these are things that, uh, you know, I, I never and I know you never really said that $3.5 trillion was great for the economy. I mean, you never did. We all loved Operation Warp Speed. That's true. But that wasn't three and a half trillion. No, it and wasn't. So, you know, these people like Yellen and some of the others, and I don't want to name names, they're caught in a conundrum, Larry, that they don't know how to get out of. And so they say stuff that's not true. What about the second one, though? Democrats want a lame duck spending binge. They're talking about a couple of hundred billion dollars. And it could be even worse if they uh, put through the child tax credit, which is an abysmal yeah, failure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and by the way, all these welfare programs that have proliferated since COVID, right, none of them have any work requirements, Art. And that's another issue. I mean, oh, it's a huge people issue, don't want to work. You're so right. You've been pushing that issue for a long time, and you're completely correct on that. I mean, just completely correct. And there's so many other issues involved in all of this as well. I mean, spending is out of control. Yep. But it's out of control – because a pandemic triggered a, a response, you know, whenever politicians say, we've got to do something, you know, grab your wallet and run to the basement because all hell's going to break loose. Free markets are never more important than they are during periods of crisis. That's when free markets really work, Larry, and that's the one time politicians avoid them. And then they put in government actions as opposed to free markets. So now the GOP takes the House – uh, it's a close margin, but they take the House. They have about the same margin that Pelosi had the last few years. Yep. Uh, what do you want to see him do? That's the key point. What I is the constructive? I and stop bad policies. That's all I want to see. I do not want to see them seeking revenge and becoming as angry and nasty as the Democrats are. Hmm. I mean, when I saw the Democrats, when I saw Biden or what, uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the Attorney General uh, of the United States, uh, put out a special prosecutor for Trump. Mm. That's just, I mean, that's not not necessary. And we don't need to be matching them tit for tat on going after all these others. I just don't want to see an activist, hostile, nasty set of Republicans going after these issues, Larry. We need to be the party of uplift, the party of dreams, the party of creating a better world, of better economics. As, as you and I have talked about, we need to be the stewards of the economy, mm -hmm. the guarantors of prosperity. We need to be Ronald Reagan and Jack Kemp, mm -hmm. not nasty people. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm afraid – the Republicans are tilting in that direction of going after people rather than trying to make things better for people. Well, I think, you know, uh, there will be hearings. Look, there have to be some hearings on these Twitter revelations about the laptop computer. There's got to be some hearings on that because they're just out and out lied. But you're right. Uh, let's not get carried away. Newt Gingrich, by the way, would agree with us. Newt said, how about, you know, 10 percent on the oversight hearings? 
and the rest of it, let's get the but economy going. Let me ask going. you about the oversight hearings, Larry. Let's imagine they want to have call witnesses and they do a subpoena. What do you think the chances are that these Justice Department's going to uh, uh, enforce that subpoena? Well, I don't know. Pretty low. <laughs> Pretty Probably. low. Yeah. They're they're so complicit in everything yeah. that they aren't going to help us do investigations of Hunter Biden and my impeachment of Mayorkas. No, no, they're not. It's just going to be one frustrating mess after another well, for another but- two years. And, you know, we've had no success on the border. Uh, we've had no success on the hearings and getting things through, and we're not going to have much more either. And so you, you can fume and rage all you want. We need progress. We need victories. We need to get things done that are good. And and that's what I'm really after, not just uh, – I don't want to be Gunga Din and die shot on a dung heap. <laughs> I, I want to see my country prevail. And you know, right now, Trump, uh, Biden's having a pretty good time of it. Things are looking great. I mean, much better in Ukraine than I ever thought they would. Uh, things are looking, you know, the unemployment rate, the inflation rates are, are you know, the, uh, the headline numbers are looking better. And our time now is to really set the stage for what prosperity should be in 2024. We need to win in 24. So what's the agenda? What's the stewardship agenda? Yeah, low-rate, broad-based flat tax where you tax all income at the same rate from the first dollar to the last dollar. Uh, Broad-based, so you have the least number of places where you can put that income. Low rate, very low rate, so people don't want to evade, avoid, or otherwise not report taxable income. Spending restraint, which you've been pushing so much. We could reduce spending by 40% and not have a a big plus effect on the economy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number three, sound money. You and I know we know how to get sound money. Mm -hmm. We saw Volcker do it. We saw Reagan do it. Control money and expand goods. Uh, minimal regulations, Larry. You know, we need to get rid of all of these regulations, restrictions, and requirements on energy. We need to do it on labor. We need to do it where we are pro-growth, not anti-growth. And lastly, free trade. We need free trade, and we need especially in areas where we're trying to get them to change their minds on their policies. There's nothing better than to coax someone into doing something good rather than threatening to hit them if they don't do good. So and, I would, you know, here I'm talking about trade with the world, the way Reagan did with NAFTA. You know, Reagan developed NAFTA. Mm-hmm. It was Bill Clinton that got it passed. Thank God, Trump put through some very good free trade mess uh, mm-hmm. programs that, mm-hmm. with your help and the help of others. We need to go that way. Trump tried to bring. Uh, Kim Jong-un into the world of peace lovers. He tried to negotiate with Xi and all the others. I mean, we need to we need to entice them into our world, not try to smack them, mm. because trade is not a good policy for waging aggressive actions against other countries. See, so think about this. Uh, talk about having hearings and regular order, which is so badly lacking. Exactly. Ha- let the budget committees... Let the Ways and Means Committee, uh, let the Joint Committee on the Economy, which, you know, Kevin, yeah. uh, uh, Kevin, Kevin from Texas, uh, did some great work on that. Uh, Brady. Kevin Brady, wonderful man. And yes. those would be very valuable regular order committee hearings, you know, have liberal witnesses and conservative witnesses. Yes, it would ha- be. Hash out. You know, budget restraint, uh, new work requirements, uh, flat tax incentive approach, 
Precisely. Sound money approach. All these things could be hashed out in full public view. That's why I'm so against, Arthur, you know, four people in a dark room making a $5 trillion or $6 it's trillion dollar omnibus, uh, omnibus spending bill, right? Don't it's do that. You're screwing the taxpayers, but you're not informing anybody about anything. Exactly. Now, the question is the way Brady should do it is to go to some of his people he has on the Democratic side and sit him down and have a dinner with him, a glass of wine with him, and say, let's us do this for the country and bring them under the tent with him. That's what Reagan did. You know, we were told, Larry, that Reagan's first bill on spending and Reagan's second bill on tax cuts, we had to have a Democratic co-sponsor of each of those bills in the House. And, you know, I knew Phil Graham fairly well. I mm-hmm. suggested Phil Graham back in the day, and it became Graham Lotta on the spending bill. Mm-hmm. If you remember, Phil Graham was on the uh, budget committee. Budget committee. Yeah. And then we had the other one who was a, I had a couple of class where he was a student uh, at Texas Tech was Kent Hance. Mm-hmm. It was Hance Conable mm-hmm. was the tax rate bill. I mean, it got Hance fired by Rosinkowski. True. But we had bipartisan, really bipartisan hearings and everything. We had uh, what was his name uh, from Texas, uh, Senator um, who was vice president under Mondale. Um, oh, Lloyd Benson. Lloyd Benson. Thank you. Lloyd Benson. Who wanted to the, cut the corporate tax. He was great. I spent a lot of time with Lloyd, and he was just wonderful. Davey Boren, my classmate. Right. I mean, you don't get better. Qual- we need to invite them into us, not sit there and flip them off with a middle finger. And, you know, we need to be the party of nice people. We need to be the party of prosperity, of jobs, of lifting people out of poverty, enterprise zones. We need to do real enterprise zones in the inner cities to make it so that blacks can get out of their poverty in there and out of the hollows here in Kentucky and the poverty, rural poverty. We need to get medical transparency so people know what medicine costs, what it does, and they can shop. That's what our party has to be as the uplifting party of Reagan and Kemp. And you, by the way, you've always been and the you. most positive, wonderful and influence you. on this no, world No, I ever. think that's the way to do it. I'm going to let you have your weekend back. You're awful nice to give us a couple minutes. It's a good message, Art. It's a terrific well, message. By the way, I'll call terrific. you a little later because i got some stuff to talk to you Go. about that might be just loads of fun. All right. you got a deal. Anytime, place. the great Art Laffer. Take care, Larry. Thank Thanks. you. Take care. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick Bye. break. And uh, John Carney of Breitbart on the other side of the break to talk about these uh, jobs numbers and what they're going to mean for your pockets and your money and your wallets. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. And we bring in my friend John Carney, Breitbart News Editor economics and finance editor, co-author of the Breitbart Business Digest. John, thank you for doing this. Uh, You know, we talked a little bit about this on the TV show yesterday, but you look at the jobs report, um, I mean, it's got good and bad when you go under the hood. I'm suggesting that when the household survey, and I saw somebody paid attention to that. I don't know, maybe it was the Wall Street Journal. It's hard to get people to pay attention. The household survey is falling, but on the other hand, wages are rising. And so the question is, what does it mean for the economy? But what does it mean for the Federal Reserve in your judgment? So I think what the jobs number is going to do is convince the Fed that not only do they you know, have to do the 50 basis points uh, in two weeks, 
the hike that they were planning on doing anyway, but they're probably going to have to do another 50 basis points in January, mm. uh, January, end of Feb or January, end of January, beginning of February. There was a lot of thought. I think the, the, the consensus view was do 50 in December and then move down to 25. That may go away. And of course, you know, if we get softer numbers between now and then, things can change. But right now, given what we're seeing and the conviction of Jerome Powell that we need to have fewer jobs in America, uh, I think they're going – that this moves them up from a 25 basis point hike in January to a 50 basis point hike. You know, it's a funny thing. Um, Jay Powell, the Grinch who stole Christmas wages. The Grinch who stole Christmas. So wages are up 5.8%. Now, Livornia was right. I went back and looked, Joe Livornia. The productivity is not keeping up with the wages. So that's uh, that's important. That's something. But, um, you know, a lot of other measures are showing a decline in the economy. Leading indicators, and the money supply, M2, and uh, inverted yield curve, and uh, commodity markets are soft, John. I mean, it's tricky. It's a really telling yeah. thing I think we saw in this report was a pretty big decline in two pretty critical aspects of the economy uh, and that you wouldn't expect to see in November, which was retail jobs mm -hmm. dropped by 30,000 mm -hmm. and warehousing and transportation jobs dropped by about half that much. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, these are places that you would expect to be ramping up. Now, these are seasonally adjusted numbers. I I will confess that I didn't look beyond the seasonally adjusted numbers, but what it's telling us is that areas that we would expect to see growing at this time of year are not. Uh, and if you're seeing a, and we, we've also heard about layoffs at Federal Express, when you're seeing that happening during the holiday season, one, as you said, it's, you know, that's not exactly, you know, that, that is the Grinch who stole Christmas, and Jerome Powell wants that to happen. But two, it is an indicator, I think, that even though we're seeing spending rise nominally, people are probably buying less stuff. If, right. you know, if spending goes up 5%, but prices are up 8%, what people are really doing is spending less money uh, or buying less stuff than they were a year ago. That's and important. That, that, that makes sense for why we would see the kind of layoffs or, sorry, the kind of you know, downsizing in uh, the retail sector and the, and the transportation and warehousing. I mean, these are places, transportation and warehousing, six months ago, they couldn't find enough people to do it, mm. and now it's shrinking by 15,000. You know, you're so right. I'm looking at the numbers here. Uh, John Carney, the last three months, retail trade and transportation have fallen three months in a row. So that can't that's be right. that can't be a good sign. No, it's not. And that that's not an area, by the way, that we would think of as particularly interest rate sensitive. Um, you know, we of course, housing is, you know, ultra interest rate sensitive. But you wouldn't expect one of the first places for a contraction to start occurring based on interest rate hikes from the Fed to happen in retail trade. That, mm. That's unusual, not highly sensitive. 
But uh, we're seeing that, and I, I do think it's because, partly, you know, uh, this can, you know, as you, you've, you've been pointing out, rightly so, the contraction of the money supply, people are actually, in real terms, spending less money on their holidays. Mm-hmm. The surveys, even from people who are, you know, generally bullish, like the National Retail Federation, uh, said that they expect that we will. Uh, that spending for the holidays will be up something like 8%. But the year-over-year uh, year gain in prices is more than that for the kind of goods that people buy during the holidays. So uh, and we, we, we also saw in the uh, consumer, the, the consumer uh, spending numbers that we got out earlier this week uh, that spending on durable goods – Fell, and you know that's that, and so I think what we're going to see is that once again, uh, people are shopping earlier this year. Mm. That creates a kind of bullishness about the economy. People say, "Well, if they spent that much in October, imagine just how great spending will be in November and December." And that's a mistake. Yeah, I think what what what's happened is people have shifted their shopping earlier. And we're gonna we're gonna discover that again this year. Eventually, the analysts will get it right. They'll figure out that people do their holiday spending earlier. They, but, sh- they shop earlier and they vote earlier. That's a joke, <laughs> that's joke, right. joke, 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 joke. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> by the way, um, the ISM manufacturing fell forty nine percent, forty nine point zero, so down from fifty. And actually, it was a pretty dismal report. And also, John, uh, consumer confidence fell. The conference board consumer confidence measure fell uh, quite a bit, actually. And the odd thing in that is that the uh, inflation expectations rose even while confidence fell. So, you know, you have a situation, I think, John, where the economy is steadily weakening. You know, we may look back and say that 2022 was a recession year. We don't know that yet, but I'm just saying the economy's weakening, but inflation is sticky, and one reason inflation is sticky is that rising wage costs are pushing up services prices. Now, okay. I, if you if you look at the services uh, personal consumption expenditure index, that was up. Uh, 0.8%. Yeah. That's a lot. And that is one sticky because obviously, you know, nobody accepts a lower wage. So, you know, that, that doesn't co- never comes down once you get that kind of gain. And then number two, I think certainly obviously in the services sector, when you have goods inflation, the prices can come down when you make more of whatever good Mm -hmm. is there. You can't make more services necessarily, particularly when, as we saw in the jobs number, the labor force is actually contracting. So services inflation actually tends to be stickier. Yep. And and it's mostly wages. All right. That's what we're paying for. John Carney of Breitbart, thanks for the rundown. Looks like the Fed's going to steal Christmas. The Fed is the Grinch that will steal Christmas. Gotta love that. Folks, we're going to take a break and a great treat on the other side of the break. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel will visit.
It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And by the way, during the week, please join us. Fox Business News. Name of the show is Kudlow. 4 to 5 p.m. If you can't make it at 4, you can text your favorite 9-year-old who will show you how to DVR the show. And by the way, in this broadcast, you can get us on the Internet, live streaming on the Internet, LarryKudlowShow.com, all across the country, throughout the world, and the solar system. Uh, We're trying to track down uh, Bibi Netanyahu, talk about his new book. But meanwhile, we have my great friend, Scott Hodge, who was the longtime president of the Tax Foundation, and uh, semi-retired right now. He's not really retired, but he's semi-retired. Anyway, Scott Hodge, welcome back. Great to be with you, uh, Larry. Thanks. All right, so uh, I love this. You've thrown in the towel. Mea culpa. The -hmm. child tax credit is a failed experiment. You invented the thing. People have run wild with it. By the way, Democrats want to run completely wild with it again and probably add uh, if they could. I don't know if they'll get the votes for this or not. Why hasn't the child tax credit worked, Scott Hodge? Uh, Larry, this is a classic case of a perhaps well-intentioned idea gone awry. Uh, This started out 25 years ago as a $500 credit for families with kids to help them with some expenses. And it's really morphed into one of the largest income transfer programs in the federal budget. Uh, Families are now eligible for a $2,000 credit, which is four times the original starting point. And of course, last year, uh, the Biden administration jacked that up to $3,000 for children and $3,600 for younger kids. But I think the thing that's uh, really troubling about this is how many people it's knocked off the tax rolls. So now we have as many as 40 percent of all taxpayers or tax filers who are off the tax rolls because of these kind of credits. Um, people can get the credit even if they don't have a tax liability. And I think the more troubling aspect is that this has put the IRS in the middle of the welfare state. Mm. It's made it a, a distinct part of of the of of the welfare program in America and I, it's not a, it's not a responsibility and it's not something that the IRS does very well how much money have we spent on this thing well it's a 120 billion dollar a year program if you will through wow. the tax code mm-hmm. and to put that in some perspective that's equal to the combined budgets of homeland security mm. housing and urban development and labor departments combined mm. that's huge it's a huge amount of transfer now and you put on top of that there are a number of other credits out there the earned income tax credit um, many many other education credits and so forth the total amount of credits in the federal budget these days runs to a quarter of a trillion dollars a year and much of that is is what we call refundable meaning as i say if you don't have an income tax liability, you can still get at least a portion of the tax credit in the form of a check uh, at the end of the right. tax year. That's a key point. So these are these have become government checks. That's it. Yes. Yeah. People with no liability. It's an out of control social. This is social spending through the tax code, which is a very bad idea. I mean, I think that's an important part of this, Scott. You want to cut taxes, lower marginal tax rates. 
If you want to have spending, call it spending. Score it as budget outlays so that, you know, so people know that that this is what it really is. And I think, look, uh, I read your piece with great interest. The Wall Street Journal wrote an editorial, a companion editorial about this. Here's the other thing, Scott. No work requirements. So we are spending through the tax code more and more, as you say, a quarter of a trillion dollars now. But there's no work requirements. So isn't this a disincentive to work? Well, each of these programs is a little different. Uh, The earned income tax credit, of course, you do have to work in order to get it. Um, But, uh, you know, when, when Congress's Joint Committee on Taxation analyzed the proposal to expand this tax credit, they did find it would be a dis- disincentive to work. It would take people out of the workforce, shrinking the workforce. It would also have a, uh, an effect of reducing capital investment. And ultimately, it re- reduced GDP. Mm-hmm. So this is a program that's not only a budget buster, but it's harmful to the economy and harmful to the work effort of Americans. And so all in all, uh, this is a net negative on the economy. And really, you know, as you know, Larry, so well, good tax policy – should be about promoting economic growth, higher wages, and higher living standards, not redistribution. Right. And this is a perfect example of why that's not going to work. I mean, uh, you've, you know, <laughs> there's so many people, able-bodied people, who are not working, I think, because we have welfare without workfare. And yeah. this, we want to help people who are, you know, down on their luck. America is a very generous country. But we've gone way too far. And again, the Gingrich-Clinton reforms of 25 years ago that put in work and education requirements have been lost. So this just, you know, it's damaging. It's one reason why there's 10 million jobs open and uh, we can't seem to fill them. And Nick Eberstadt of AI, he estimates 7 million Able-bodied people, listen to this, Scott, maybe you know this number, 7 million people between the ages of 25 and 54, that's the prime working age, 7 million are unemployed and not even looking for work. I mean, that's a very bad number, very bad. And his his work is so important, but it's especially important in a time in which there are 10 million open jobs. Yep, yep. (laughs) There, there is work for anybody who wants it, and so you have to wonder what's going on with these incentives. What's keeping people home instead of in the workforce? And you know, not only is that bad for you know, um, uh, you know, sort of the broader productivity of the economy, but it's bad for morale. It's bad for, mm-hmm. uh, I, I think, you know, sort of the general ethos in America that people should you know be out there, be productive, be you know, uh, uh, part of the, the growing economy. All right. Scott Hodge, thank you for that. Uh, thank you for your honesty. Um, all right, we're going to transfer. We have found the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. All right, Mr. Prime Minister, you are out there someplace. Yes, I am in Israel, not someplace, in a very definite <laughs> place. Good to talk to you, Larry. <laughs> thank you, sir. You know, you may not remember this. I mean, I want to talk about your great book. Uh, uh, it's called Bibby. It's just my story, Bibby, uh, out and about. But you, you may not remember this. Jack Kemp introduced us when you were, 
I guess, either running for finance minister or you were finance minister. And then a second time, Ronald Lauder had us to dinner at the old Mark Hotel. And we talked about supply side economics. And it turns out you governed as finance minister and then multiple times as prime minister as a free market guy. And you liberated the Israeli economy. So I want to say congratulations, and I'm very proud of you, sir. Well, you're very kind, and you had some influence. Jack Kemp, too, I remember that he said to me, uh, I have only three things to tell you, lower taxes, lower taxes, lower taxes. (laughs) He was right, (laughs) and we did that, and it works. It did work. So um, the Israeli economy has become one of the best in the world. Yes, it has. We have... Look, uh, I inherited, I I described this in my book, uh, among other things. I uh, had a clear vision that to survive, the Jewish state has to be strong. To be strong, it needs a strong army. To keep a strong army, it needs a strong economy. To get a strong economy, you have to turn it from a semi-socialist state to a free market capitalist state. Uh, To do that required dozens and dozens of reforms that uh, uh, basically liberated the genius uh, an enterprise of our people. So having done that, and it's politically very difficult to do, as you can imagine, uh, it was. Uh, Israel's GDP per capita that trailed all the Western European countries, and certainly America by far, has now uh, surpassed Japan's, um, France, Britain, and uh, recently Germany, too. So we're, we're on the right path. And uh, God willing, in a few days, I'll be inform another government, and we'll continue on that same path. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Prime Minister, uh, what you know, what what else, what new reforms? And can I just ask you also, uh, Israel is right nearby some major deposits, if I'm not mistaken, of oil and natural gas, which would make it a terrific powerhouse and would add to the economic story. Can you talk about that? Well, actually, I describe in, in the book one of the battles that I had to fight was to get the offshore deposits of natural gas under the seabed in, uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, in our territorial and economic waters. Uh, I had to get them out of the sea, and I couldn't because I had this, you know, this uh, ultra-radical progressive wing that said you have to keep it, uh, keep it in, in the sea for environmental reasons. I mean, environmental reasons, this is the best way to replace coal if you have natural gas and so on. Uh, we had to fight that. I did. I one, and now we're exporting gas to, uh, uh, to uh, first of all, to uh, the Palestinians of Jordan nearby. But uh, in addition, what I intend to do is lay a pipeline to uh, uh, LNG plant in uh, nearby, probably in Cyprus, and export massively to Europe, which I think would very much welcome that uh, event. So we, we've turned Israel not only into economic independence, but into energy independence, and it's it's a big thing, obviously. Well, and it would presumably enormously strengthen your hand in all manner of uh, peace or war or politics in the Middle East. Yeah, I, I think that uh, we, have, uh, we have that coming anyway because uh, with President Trump and his team, uh, I changed the equation. Everybody said you can't make peace with uh, the Arab countries unless you first solve uh, the problem with the Palestinians. The problem with that is the Palestinians don't want to solve a problem with Israel. They want a peace without Israel. 
They, they don't want a state next to Israel. They want a state instead of Israel. Uh, and so if you wait for them, you'll wait for another quarter of a century, another half a century, until we could get another peace treaty in addition to the ones we had with uh, Egypt and Jordan 25 years ago and, and, and before that. Uh, I said, let's go directly to the Arab world. Uh, and we did. And we got four peace treaties with uh, the United Arab Emirates, with Bahrain, with Morocco, and with Sudan. And if you ask me what are my plans, well, I think we should expand it. And the most important country that we could expand it to it would be a quantum leap, would be uh, Saudi Arabia. And I think that would effectively end the uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, which is uh, about 98% of the Arab world. And it'll leave the Palestinians who are still recalcitrant, and I hope we'll get them in, in a genuine and realistic peace, too. But this is, this is something that's definitely uh, on my uh, dashboard. And whether we can achieve it, of course, depends on the Saudi leadership and others, but I think there's a real chance. Prime Minister, how important was your working relationship with Donald Trump on the Abraham Accords and other matters? I think it was vital. I mean, uh, President Trump was a great president, a great friend of Israel, I have to say, uh, a great uh, uh, champion of uh, breaking breaking the rules. Somebody asked me how would I call him, and I called him irreverent. He was irreverent in the sense that he was out of the box. He, he wasn't committed to the, uh, you know, to the uh, stayed uh, and, uh, I was going to say, tried uh, and, and failed narratives of the past. So he was open to other things, and that was very important. He uh, recognized Jerusalem uh, as our capital, which is kind of uh, late in the game, but no president did that before him. Uh, 3,000 years ago, King David proclaimed Jerusalem as our capital, so it's about time, you think. He moved the American embassy there. He recognized our sovereignty in the Golan Heights. He withdrew from the disastrous uh, Iran nuclear deal that paved Iran's path with gold to a nuclear arsenal uh, and gave it hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, all these things were, were fine. doesn't mean we didn't have disagreements, but I uh, am appreciative of the fact that he did these things. Uh, and I'm I'm glad to state and restate that. Uh, Prime Minister, can um, can I beg your indulgence? I need to take a quick commercial break, and then I'd like to come back and talk some more about your new book entitled Bibi, My Story. Are you okay with that, sir? Absolutely. All right. I appreciate your waiting. The name of the book is Bibi. We're talking, of course, to the great Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back with much more on Mr. Netanyahu. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are talking to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has graciously agreed to stay a while longer. The name of the book is called Bibi, My Story. It's hot off the presses. Um, Prime Minister, you are, of course, famous for proclaiming the need for peace through strength. Uh, I might add, I myself worked for Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump, both of whom agreed with that view, peace through strength. The biggest threat in your area is Iran. Uh, can you talk to us? What are you saying in the book about Iran? How will you approach Iran now in your next term as prime minister? Well, I'll do everything in my power to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons, but that's not only because they threaten to annihilate my country, Israel. It's because they chant death to Israel, death to America. They call us the small Satan, they call you the big Satan. Mm. And in fact, uh, you know, all nuclear proliferation is bad, but it makes a hell of a difference if Holland has nuclear weapons or the Ayatollahs have nuclear weapons. Uh, the Ayatollahs are 
uh, a theological thuggery. They oppress their own people, and the whole world now uh, has uh, seen Iran's true character unmasked uh, thanks to the incredible courage and bravery of these Iranian women and men who are dying in the streets for their freedom. And this regime that subjugates their own people threatens to uh, uh, annihilate my country and threaten and blackmail you uh, because they're, if they were uh, given the, the wherewithal to develop intercontinental ballistic missiles, which they're working on, and to have them uh, tipped with nuclear warheads, which they're working on, uh, that would change uh, history. It would be a pivot of history, a pivot of catastrophe. And therefore, my battle is obviously for, uh, for my country, the one and only Jewish state, and we won't let these ayatollahs erase uh, uh, four millennia of Jewish history. But it's also for the, for the future of our common civilization. You cannot have Iran, uh, the worst enemy of our civilization, have nuclear weapons and the means to deliver them to every American city. I've devoted a good part of my life, and by the way, uh, uh, a very uh, big part of my book, mm. to this ongoing battle, some of which I describe. I can't describe all the things that we've done. I describe how I sent one operation, the Mossad, into the heart of Tehran. They found a dilapidated warehouse uh, where Iran was hiding its secret atomic archive. They broke into the, the safes. They knew which safes contained the material. Uh, Spilfered away half a ton of material. If you saw Argo, this was Argo on steroids. Yeah. Because thousands of Iranian security personnel were chasing them uh, throughout uh, Tehran, but they got out. They brought the material to Israel. I brought it to uh, President Trump in the Oval Office, uh, and I was delighted when the president left that deal. But it's an ongoing battle. It's an ongoing battle to prevent Iran from having the wherewithal to threaten all of us. And, of course, they are the prime sponsors of terrorism and murder throughout the Middle East and probably everywhere in the world. Yes, and they now send killer drones to Ukraine. So you, you know, you, you know something. Nothing good will come out of the fact that they'll be able to uh, get a nuclear uh, nuclear arsenal, which they will if this deal goes through, and they'll get it with uh, you know with uh, basically an international seal of approval of uh, a P five plus one, what they call the uh, the major powers of the world, uh, giving their blessing to this course, which basically kicks the can only a few years, but gives Iran uh, sanctions relief that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. That's folly, the height of folly. Mm. I'm opposed to it. If you want to know, and I talk about it, what will stop a rogue regime from having nuclear weapons, the answer is the only thing that stops it is not an agreement which they cheat on anyway uh, and won't stop them even if they don't cheat. What stops them is the combination of, of uh, crippling economic sanctions mm -hmm. and, most importantly, and irreplaceably, a credible military option. That's what stopped Iraq from doing it. Saddam Hussein, we stopped them. That's what stopped uh, Syria uh, from developing a nuclear weapon. We stopped them. That's what stopped Gaddafi, Gaddafi an American threat, and he volunteered, didn't even have to be attacked. But it didn't stop North Korea because nobody actually had that uh, over their heads. So they are, you know, now half of Asia is quaking with fear. They can threaten Japan, and they may very well threaten the west coast of the United States very soon. North Korea is an anthill compared to Iran. Mm. It is mm. uh, a neighborhood bully, but it is not a global ideological a force that is absolutely opposed to our way of life, our freedoms, uh, our values. 
do not let Iran have nuclear weapons. I don't understand, Prime Minister, why the uh, Biden administration is making the same mistake the Obama administration isn't trying to make a deal. I don't understand it. I just don't get it. It makes no – for all the reasons you've said, for all the reasons when I worked for Trump – I tell you what, sir, will you – let before we answer that, let me take a hard break, okay, Uh, and then you'll come back and talk some more about that. And also I want to talk about your own brave service uh, in the uh, Israeli Special Forces. If you could just stay a little bit more with us, folks. We're talking to Prime Minister Netanyahu. The name of the book is Bibi, My Story. It's a riveting book, and you can hear the Prime Minister's points of view. We'll be right back. I'm Kudlow. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are still here with uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who has graciously agreed to give us even more of his valuable time he has his new book out. It is called Bibi, My Story. He's a world-renowned figure. Everybody knows who he is. It's a terrific book, a good, long read. Uh, Prime Minister, thank you for this. I want to go back to this point. Uh, the Biden administration is making the same mistake, it seems to me, that the Obama administration made. They want to make some kind of nuclear deal with Iran. As you yourself said, the Iranians, of course, always lie and cheat. They never tell the truth. This would entail, a deal would entail lifting economic sanctions, providing hundreds of billions of dollars to Iran, for which they will use to do nothing more than making great mischief in the region and around the world. Now, I know this is a delicate matter. I'm not trying to upset the diplomatic uh, apple cart. You're going to be prime minister again, and the, uh, but Mr. Biden is the president. But I don't understand any of that logic. Why would anyone want to do that? Well, this is this was, excuse me, this was a point of uh, uh, disagreement, sharp disagreement between President Obama and myself. I respected the president, but I disagreed with him. And I describe in my book how I made a very tough decision to uh, take on an invitation. <coughs> excuse me, to address the joint session of Congress and to challenge the, uh, uh, in 2015, the Iran nuclear deal. <coughs> By the way, the, the worst time I had was uh, the evening before. My sinuses were clogged. I couldn't finish uh, mid-sentence, any mid-sentence, practicing the speech. So I got up in the morning having not slept a wink, made my way to the Capitol, and lo and behold, right when I saw the Capitol steps, my sinuses cleared for a few hours, <laughs> like the revelation, the waters had parted. <laughs> I, I have the Stay same back. sinus uh, problem, by the way, sir. <laughs> so I well, get it. You know, you, but it was an act have, of God. Uh, God wanted you to be you, in shape for this. You have to have divided <laughs> intervention, at least, at least there was in this case. So, uh, you know, we disagreed then. And, uh, you know, my sense is that although there seems to be or there seemed until recently to be uh, continuity in, in this policy uh, with the, uh, President Biden's administration, I sense that there's a change probably because of the uh, unfolding events in Iran that are so uh, extraordinary uh, and, and so, frankly, inspiring uh, the battle for basic human freedom that uh, the, the brave citizens of Iran are putting forth, that I, I think that's been put on hold, uh, I hope, permanently. Uh, I intend to bring it up with uh, uh, President Biden, who's been a personal friend of mine, 
for the last 40 years. Again, not because we've not had disagreements. We have, but we respect and like each other. So I intend to bring it up with him in the first available opportunity. I mean, one of the things I find troubling is that the uh, senior people in the Biden administration uh, at the NSC and the State Department and so forth, and the president himself, uh, never talk about the Abraham Accords, never talk favorably. They have a euphemism for it. And the Abraham Accords were a great achievement between you and President Trump and the other members, the Arab Gulf states who joined in. But it always seemed to me like the Bidens are giving a cold shoulder to the Abraham Accords and keep playing footsie with Iran. And um, to me, that defies any common sense, and it certainly defies any strategic sense. I mean, will they help you in your judgment, or will you ask them to help you to broaden the Abraham Accords, for example, to bring the Saudis in? Because I frankly think this Biden's have bungled relations with Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis are key. Well, I have two, uh, two immediate goals. One is to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons, uh, continue to block it, because I think the actions that uh, Israel has taken uh, over the years that my governments have taken uh, set back Iran for at least a decade, mm. but they're still pursuing it. So the job is, the jury's still out on all of us. So one thing is to block Iran's quest for nuclear weapons. That's a global interest, not merely an Israeli interest. It's certainly an American interest. And the second one is to uh, further expand the circle of peace and effectively end the Arab-Israeli conflict. And uh, I hope uh, that uh, uh, I can find in President uh, Biden, any American president, uh, a partner for these two uh, extraordinary causes. I think they're both doable. In terms of uh, expanding this uh, Abraham Accords, isn't um, open trade and investment a key part of this, you know, cooperative economic development among the countries involved. Wouldn't that be a key part of this? Well, it is. It is. This is what is happening. You know, before that, we had a, what I'd call a cold peace between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Jordan. That is, we're non-belligerents and we go and see each other and so on. But our economies didn't mesh. But my vision of the peace with the uh, Gulf states and under the Abraham Accords was that we actually have a peace between our peoples, our business people, our entrepreneurs, the tourism. It's extraordinary. What has happened is almost defies imagination. Hundreds of thousands of Israelis are flying over the skies of Saudi Arabia today. So you understand Mm. that the Soviets certainly do not look askance at these agreements, and that gives hope for uh, for the future, for the immediate future. But look also what is happening. There are billions and billions of dollars of them of uh, joint ventures, of common business uh, enterprises that are uh, happening, which is, that's really creating the fabric of a genuine peace that we all want to see. And if you ask me, can this be expanded with Saudi Arabia? It won't be just expanded. It'll make a quantum leap if we can get Saudi Arabia. And from there, I believe the rest of the Arab world in. It would change history. All the meetings that I was involved with uh, in the Oval, but with David Friedman and Jared Kushner and many others, I would always emphasize open trade and investment. And the fact is you are a free market guy, so I think it's right up your alley. You understand the growth impact, but nothing will heal better than a prosperous region. Don't you think, sir? I mean, prosperity is a crucial part of this. Poverty is the enemy of peace. Prosperity is the friend of peace. Absolutely. Uh, not only do I uh, 
subscribe to it. I've uh, f- uh, formulated my policies uh, on that line. So, uh, first of all, within Israel, you know, free up just uh, must have passed about 80 or 90 market reforms that uh, catapulted Israel into uh, a frontline juggernaut state of innovation. And by the way, you have to understand that's, as I describe in my book, you know, most people think that the key to economic growth is education and technology. It's not. Uh, you can be highly educated, uh, as in the former Soviet Union. They had fantastic metallurgists and mathematicians and physicists, and they produced damn all. But the minute one of these uh, able people was uh, smuggled out to Palo Alto, he was beginning to uh, generate wealth within days. Mm. Uh, so, you know, mm. what gen- free markets, uh, mm. I would say differently. I would say that education and uh, technology do not produce wealth. Free markets do. But if you have the combination, as we do in Israel, of free markets and technology, then uh, that's an unbeatable, uh, an unbe- unbeatable combination that uh, uh, skyrockets the economy, which is what we've done. So now what I want to do with that, having achieved it in Israel, is to have that same uh, melting, if you will, of interest uh, with our neighbors. And that's definitely happening with uh, the Gulf states, and I believe it can happen with others as well. That really produces the kind of genuine peace, peace from strength, and as you say, peace from prosperity that uh, betters the life of everyone. We're talking to Prime Minister Bibi Natanyu, his new book, Bibi, My Story, uh, Hot Off the Presses. He's very kind and gracious to give us time to talk about this. Um, Prime Minister, I did not know that you went to MIT. All right, that's new information. In fact, I don't really think I knew you lived here for a good long while, and a lot of your education was in the U.S. That's new information coming out of the book. Can you tell us about it? Yeah, I spent uh, uh, my high school years and uh, my uh, uh, my university years and uh, well, high school years outside Philadelphia and uh, my. Uh, university at, in Cambridge, Mass. I came in after five years of military service in the Israeli Army, so I was sort of older than all these hotshot kids at 18. <laughs> I decided I have to brush up on my math and physics and deci- discovered that at MIT, in those days at least, all you had to do to finish a semester was take the final test. So I took the test and I passed, and that's how I got rid of two years uh, out of the undergraduate and then went to the Sloan School, the business school at MIT. But the real education I got in business was uh, in uh, the Boston Consulting Group with a genius, a real genius, called Bruce Henderson. He called me into his office. You know Bruce? Did you ever meet him? I have. Yes, indeed. He was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. He was really extraordinary. And that's where I really learned the fundamentals of how, how economies are made. They're made by firms. Firms create the value, mm-hmm. the added value in, in the economy, a lot more than government bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. So you have to create a policy that is uh, that is hospitable to firms and to competition. But the first day I got into uh, the Boston Consulting Group, BCG, Bruce Henderson calls me to his office, uh, and I was a fresh recruit. I'd never worked in business a day. I was a military officer, for God's sake. I mean, I knew nothing about business or economics. And he said to me, uh, you know, I know you're going to go back to your country uh, and probably be very soon. So learn everything you can here while you're here, because one day it will help your country. And I thought this man was absolute bunkers. Mm. You know, I was 27 years old. What was he talking about? But he was absolutely right. 
and it served me well. I think it served Israel's economy well. Yeah, well, you had the rudiments of uh, actually those are rudiments of free market supply side economics. You have to look at economics should be looked at through the firm. Successful firms create jobs and wages and improve family incomes. It's not governments. It's businesses that do it. You can't have a healthy job or the good paying uh, wage unless you have a healthy business. Boy, there's a debate about that right now in this country as well. Um, Prime Minister, tell us also, I I was not aware, uh, you uh, fought in the special forces of the Israeli Defense Forces, the special forces uh, called the unit. Uh, I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. I don't think many people knew that. So you've served your country in many different ways. Tell us about that. Tell us as much about that as you can. Well, I, I have joined a, a special unit. It's kind of a, it's hard to describe this, but this is a, a tiny unit of about 100 fighters. Uh, we ended up being three brothers in there, my older brother uh, my, and my younger one. And, and in a unit that's somewhat like a combination of Navy SEALs, hmm. SAS, and, uh, I don't know, uh, Delta Force. I don't know. But it's tiny. It's, uh, it's a special unit, um, one of the best of its kind in the world. Uh, and uh, uh, I ended up uh, staying there for five years as an officer. I was wounded. Uh, I-, I crossed into beyond enemy lines in many clandestine operations, but I, I had my brushes with death. Several times I nearly died in a firefight and nearly drowned in the Suez Canal in the midst of uh, a a terrible firefight uh, where I lost a good friend. Uh, I uh, uh, was shot. I was wounded in the rescue, the first uh, actually uh, storming of a hijacked aircraft in history. Uh, And we successfully uh, liberated uh, the hostages in Tel Aviv. When was this? Uh, When was this, Prime Minister? When was this, this was Prime Minister? Huh. This was 1972. Wow. And uh, after that, I left this unit. I uh, left. I was uh, uh, released as, a, as an officer uh, and went to study at MIT. My older brother remained in the unit, became its commander. And four years later, the terrorist, uh, the Palestinian terrorist who had tried to uh, uh, land the airport in Tel Aviv and were, d- were killed by us, decided uh, their successor decided that they could get away with it if they land in the heart of Africa. So they hijacked an Air France plane full of Israelis and Jews, uh, landed it in Antebi Airport in Uganda, mm. and figured that there's nothing Israel could do. Well, they were wrong. So my brother, my older brother, Jonathan Yoni, landed uh, with his uh, uh, with soldiers from our common unit uh, in the dead of night in Antebi. He led his force, stormed the uh, old terminal where the hostages were, killed, were kept, killed the terrorists and the Ugandan troops aiding them, destroyed the MiG fighters who could have given chase to the transport planes that uh, were carrying the hostages and the force back to Israel. But unfortunately, uh, there was only one military casualty in this uh, raid, uh, and that was my brother. So he, uh, mm. he gave his life at that point uh, to, uh, uh, to the country, and that obviously uh, changed my life at uh, it was the, uh, I would say, so uh, uh, agonizing and so difficult that I didn't know that I would actually uh, live or how I would live. But somehow I found the strength uh, uh, through inconsolable grief to uh, uh, to pick up 
where my older brother left off. He, he never thought that this battle against terrorism was merely a military battle. He saw it as a civilizational battle, a moral battle, and a political battle. Uh, and, uh, and I went into, I left the Boston Consulting Group and devoted a few years to uh, a public effort to change the way that uh, Western countries thought about battling international terrorism, specifically directing them to fight the states that harbored mm. the terrorists, because mm. without state support, terrorism, international terrorism collapses. You need a sovereign territory. If you don't have one, you try to make one the way ISIS tried. You need a state or states. And so uh, I devoted some years quite successfully to change Western policies, especially under President Reagan, who um, you mentioned before. He read a book that I did based on conferences that I had organized. Uh, and with the help of George Schultz and others, uh, American policy changed to an active, proactive action against terrorist states. Uh, and from there, I, uh, from public policy, I moved into uh, uh, into diplomacy and from there to uh, politics. So now I'm still in the messy bog of politics seeking to promote policy. Politics is necessary for policy. Mm -hmm. uh, they're inseparable. I would just say, personally, it's interesting to hear you refer to Reagan. I worked for Reagan. I was the economics deputy in the Budget Bureau back in those days. I was a child. But Reagan, Reagan had an enormous impact on my political and economic thinking. And, of course, that was the day, those were the days when I worked closely with the late Jack Kemp, who was a very dear, dear friend. I mean, actually, in many ways, uh, Prime Minister, so it's over 40 years later when I went to work for Trump, but the Reagan thoughts, the Reagan principles were still always uppermost in my mind. So I understand that. And so you're really, you've been driven by this public service ethos. It kind of started from your own experiences as a soldier, it sounds like, in the Israeli Defense Forces, and you've never let up on your views on peace and uh, and terrorism and fighting it. I mean, that's what it sounds to me, and I guess that's what the book is trying to say. Is that right? Am I being fair here? I think you're being fair, and I, I think it actually starts before that with my father, who was a great historian of the Jewish people. Wow. Uh, and uh, he, he instilled in me... Uh, um, my life's mission, which I also inherited from his father, uh, and obviously my fallen brother, that is that uh, the, the mission is to assure the uh, permanence uh, and future of the state of Israel by strengthening it, uh, uh, strengthening it militarily and economically and diplomatically. But I have lived a life of purpose, mm. and I think that one of the things that people can glean from reading my book are insights into how they can achieve a life of purpose, which I believe is the, the only life truly worth living. It's wonderful. Great sentiments. Folks, the name of the book is Bibi, My Story. We have been speaking for the last 45 minutes with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, a savior of the state of Israel. Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, I can't thank you enough for your time and your patience and your contributions, sir. Thank you. Good luck. Thank you, Larry, and thank you for your friendship and your wise counsel. I do remember those dinners. <laughs> More to be revealed. Take care. Folks, we're going to take a break. I'm Larry Kudlow. We will be right back after these numerous commercial breaks that we've obliterated in order to speak with the prime minister. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. Larry Kudlow. 
I must say I really, really enjoyed that interview with um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, who's an extraordinary man. I guess this will be his third term, his third term as prime minister. And he was finance minister before that. And, yes, he is a free market guy, and he is a supply sider. And I do go back with him 20-some-odd years uh, talking about free market economics. And I did uh, spend some time with him uh, in the Trump administration and during several meetings and meals. But I just want to say, look, uh, I'm not the greatest expert on foreign policy, but look, this business with Iran, which the prime minister emphasized over and over again in our interview and in his book, this business with Iran and the Biden administration's flirtation with another Iran nuclear deal is insanity. Now, I think that uh, Mr. Netanyahu tread rather more lightly with respect to Biden because obviously they're both going to be heads of state in office and have to do business. Okay. So he's not going to, you know, rip Biden's face off. But I think he used Obama as a proxy where he indicated that he disagreed with Obama and the Iranian deal uh, that was struck in, I guess, 2015, which was a disaster, where Obama gave uh, Iran hundreds of billions of dollars, and Iran continued to cheat on their nuclear development, which we all knew would happen, and Iran continued to be the greatest sponsor of state terrorism in the Middle East, and um, and now expanding uh, around the world and uh, trying to um, destroy the United States as well as Israel. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the, the, the first 18 months of the Biden administration, uh, the State Department worked very hard, very hard to make a deal with Iran uh, and a group of mistaken European countries, including France and Germany. And since we did not have uh, direct relations, we actually were using Russia as an interlocutor, as an emissary uh, in these negotiations. And it was pure insanity. Utter insanity. Maybe it's died down now because of the goings-on, the revolution in Iran. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But we must not make a deal with Iran. They will lie, cheat, and steal. And they will jeopardize the security of Israel and the United States and Europe and the entire world. So let's not make any mistakes about that. And the Bidens had better wise up in their foreign policy over there. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And uh, please join us during the week, 4 to 5 p.m. every day, Fox Business Network. Name of the show is Kudlow. 
And if you can't get us at four, well, then just text your favorite nine-year-old who will teach you how to DVR the show. You'll never miss a thing. And here, you can live stream us on the Internet, LarryCudlowShow.com, LarryCudlowShow.com, throughout the country, around the world, and the solar system. We have a terrific following throughout the solar system. So let's do some stock market work. How about that? The stock market um, didn't really do much this week. Dow's up 83. The NASDAQ did much better, up 235. The S&P uh, up 46. It is interesting, though. Bear market uh, territory is gone. I mean, the year to date, the Dow is off 5%, and the S&P 500 is off 15%. The NASDAQ's off 27%, so that's bear market. But the others are slipping in now away from the bear market story. So let's hear from our experts. We have the great David Bonson, who's the founder and managing partner of the Bonson Group and the author of There's No Free Lunch and the No Free Lunch video series. I think he wants to talk about that. And my buddy, Jim Urio, director of TJM Institutional Services. Gentlemen, welcome very much. Mr. Bonson, did you want to say something about your series that you have put together? Well, that's very kind of you. Of course, you were one of the esteemed guests on the series. It's a six-part, about 30-minute episodes each, uh, kind of a talk show format, uh, me speaking a bit and then interviewing guests like yourself, like Ted Cruz, like Father Sirico, Dennis Prager, other people, public figures, economists, uh, a couple of theologians, scholar types. And the reason for that is I'm making a moral case for free enterprise no free lunch. It's at National Review's YouTube page. Pretty excited about it, Larry. Um, you know, I really think the world of Ted Cruz. He is a brilliant guy. He's become a regular guest on the TV show. I've known him for years, but in the last uh, year or two, David, I've really come to appreciate him more. And more. I mean, he's a steadfast defender of freedom, including economic freedom, and he has a very wide range of knowledge. I don't know whether he'll run for president or not. I frankly think he should. I mean, I think I mean I want everybody to run. You know, free market competition. Let the best man win. I'm in. I'm in Mao Zedong. Let a thousand flowers bloom. <laughs> it takes a good Chinese communist to come up with a good free market thing, but. I'm very impressed with um, with uh, Ted Cruz. Uh, Jim Urio, you're a free market guy, aren't you? You're a free enterpriser? Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, the no free lunch also happens to be the slogan at Brantz of Palatine. So we're on the same page there, ironically. But anyway, yes, I am. How's your restaurant business doing, speaking well, of free our, markets? Our restaurant business, we're doing well. We're still at a price point 
that we're still we're still crowded all the time. But I am hearing from my friends in the business that traffic's down a little bit and people are, are spending differently. Like a person sits down in a seat, they might not just, you know, get the appetizer, get everything, get the things that they used to do. People's behavior is beginning to change. Inflation is eating in the way. We've positioned ourselves almost kind of like the McDonald's. Uh, not, I mean, we're, you know, an upscale pub, but if people – you know, kick out the high-end restaurants, they'll still hopefully come to ours. So we're still doing pretty well. But expenses are unbelievably higher, 25% for food, labor. In Illinois, there's a third minimum wage increase that starts in a couple weeks mm. since they shut down all small businesses back in the day. So to make an argument that they are in support of small business, particularly independent restaurants, is a losing argument. They are absolutely not, and it's provable. Well, is that um, – I mean, the numbers suggest that it's cheaper to eat – out than it is at home. Yeah. Grocery prices at home are actually running at a faster pace than at the restaurant. In fact, people were talking, Jim, at Thanksgiving. You're be- the turkeys are so expensive, you're better off going out for uh, for Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's an interesting phenomenon that did happen, and it's true, and that for a while, and I think that's kind of leveled off over the last few months, but it did, and I think it did help the restaurant business a lot, too. And I think people's attitudes have changed, too. There's this kind of YOLO thing that people are willing to spend now on entertainment after being deprived of that for two and a half years and worry about the consequences later, and that shows up in in savings rates going down, credit card spending going up, I mean, really to alarming levels. And then we look at that stuff, and we know that that's going to end badly, but right now it's not. Dave Bonson, what's going on in the stock market? And it looks like there's a lot of economic weakness around. Uh, You heard from Jim Urio anecdotally. Anecdotal stuff is very important in my view. Uh, David, what's your reading here? What's your reading of the market? Let's start there. Yeah, I think that you do have, and you even pointed it out when you talk about the Dow only being down five, the S&P down 15, NASDAQ down you know, over 20. It is different stories across these three major market indices. And the key difference is that the higher growth, higher beta stuff that is more dependent on multiples expanding, you know, a little, a little more speculative. Those are the things that are at the height of this market distress. Um, This is so similar to when dot-com blew up in 2000. Now, in that year, the NASDAQ dropped, you know, a fortune, and the Dow was actually up on the year. The Dow didn't really go down until 9-11 back then. This year, the Dow's probably going to end a little bit negative, but it is sizably different. And so what is the reason for that difference? I think that you had two different stories that feels to many like one. The first story was overpriced stuff that had to correct, that had to get taken out and have a funeral. The crypto, the, the, the work-from-home stocks from COVID, the high-growth stuff with no profits, those things just had to kind of you know, end their bubble. But then now you look to a regular stock market, the Dow, the industrials, the financials. Uh, these companies are dealing with the reality of tightening financial conditions. They're not as susceptible and then the possibility of a recession. And to me, the big question is, does the recession end up being mild and short? Because it's coming. There's going to be one. Is it mild and short? In which case, I think it's entirely possible the market sees right through it. Or does it become more severe? In which case, you could end up with a second level down of this. But frankly, uh, you don't usually get a 25% drop in the S&P and a 35% drop in the NASDAQ unless you're already pricing some of those things in. So market forecasters taking their P's and Q's from the headlines could be way behind the curve. 
So, Jim Urio, what's your uh, what's your take? Is there a soft landing or is there a hard landing? And look, you know me, profits are the mother's milk of stocks. So profits and the recession are very closely tied together. How do you read that? Well, you know, I know you say that to bait me because I don't believe that profits are the evil man. Profits, in my opinion, are not the mother's milk of stocks. I think Fed liquidity is the mother's milk of stocks, and I think that story is rapidly changing. Last time I was on here about five, six weeks ago, I thought the story would change, and I think the stocks would profit would profit from it and go higher. And they have, and I, I personally – I said about a month and a half ago that I think the bear market is over, which when I say that, I think people think I'm making this big, bold call and putting all my chips on one square. I'm certainly not. You always live to fight another day. I do think the bear market is over. I think the last – what's really interesting to me is the last three marquee numbers outside of CPI and PPI were the two NFP numbers and the retail sales numbers. And everyone looked at those. They came out like they were good numbers because the headline was, was good. But something really weird is going on with the NFP numbers where in the last two reads alone, the establishment number says we've added 560,000 jobs, and the household survey says we've lost 460,000 jobs. So when you look into it, the market yesterday, when it first came out as a good number, I'm doing the air quotes, the stock market got pummeled because we don't want a good number right now. We want a belief that us bringing us to demand destruction, uh, you know, aggregate demand is is close to being an end and the Fed can pivot. And then towards the end of the day, people are like, no, no, this number is not a good number. Mm -hmm. This is actually a bad number when you look at everything about it. Hours worked are lower, household surveys way down, and then the stock market turned around and we started pulling out uh, rate hikes, just a, a small amount. But uh, the market is starting to believe that the Fed is close to being done, and I think that's good for risk assets, and I think it's particularly good for the metals market, but stocks for sure. Well, at the at the risk of um, bordering on insanity, I actually agree with you on that point. Finally. Well, there's been a long slog, me well, fighting I, with you. You know, <laughs> my experience down through the years is when you're at turning points in the economy, you better keep your eye on the household survey because mm-hmm. that, that's your family businesses and your wholly owned businesses and your S-corps and that kind of stuff. It's not the big corporate stuff. And um, as I said uh, last night on the TV show, I, th- I felt that um, when you look under the hood, as you are doing, uh, get below the non-farm payrolls, it ain't so good. It's not so good. And actually, hours worked, fell. I, th- I think you may have mentioned that. Hours worth fell. That's not a good sign. But wages are still rising rapidly. i got to take a break here and come back. I want Dave Bonson to talk about this because the question is, will Jay Powell be the Grinch that stole Christmas? And more than that, will Jay Powell be the Grinch that steals wages? Wages are rising even while um, inflation reports seem to be easing down. So let's take a quick break after that opener. David Bonson of the Bonson Group, Jim Urio, TJM Institutional Services. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with two smart guys, David Bonson of the Bonson Group and Jim Urio of TJM Institutional Services. Dave Bonson, is Jay Powell going to just crush the economy because workers are making more money? even though CPI is still higher than the wage increases. But they're all on a Twitter about wages. I'm reading Jason Furman, who's a very smart guy. Uh, he went bonkers over the wage numbers, terrible thing. Wages rising almost 6% for blue-collar workers, production workers. 
What's the Fed going to do here? They're going to keep raising rates. And I mean, I know they're going to do 50. But the question is, will they do lots more after that next year and really crush the economy? Just put its thumb right on it and end this whole thing. What's going to happen? No, they're not going to. And we have spent most of 2022 with a lot of people believing that, that that's what Powell would do, that Powell really was in this sort of Volcker, Volcker versus Burns kind of <laughs> identity identity crisis. It wasn't, ever, it, 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 it wasn't ever true, but I understand why it had to be presented that way. You couldn't have the headline inflation readings you were having without Powell talking that way. But Powell knows what you and I know which is at the end of the day, people hate inflation and they really hate not having a job and they really hate recessions and they really, really hate deflation. And I think that those prices are coming down for reasons nothing to do with Biden or or even the Fed uh, other than housing. I mean, the Fed's doing a good job taking the air out of housing. The problem is they're the ones who broke it to begin with. And so they should be fixing that because they blew a bubble in housing with low rates. But I don't think that most of the inflation was ever all that rate sensitive. And you see it in commodity prices. You see it with energy. We had a supply-driven energy inflation. And I think that what you need to get lower prices for Americans with energy is more production and more energy independence. Mm. Powell can't do that. This wage story, I agree with you, Furman's a smart guy, but Furman's also a Keynesian Phillips curver, and I'm not. And I'm sorry, but blue-collar workers making a few more bucks is fine by me. I don't think there's any wage spiral inflation right now. And, in fact, I think that um, getting a little higher real wages would be a good thing. So as inflation comes down and some of those wages go up, that will be good. The consumer isn't slowing down. And, 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 and I don't think that should be our number one metric anyways. The metric we all should be looking to is the production. Are we producing more goods and services? That hasn't gone recessionary yet, but it also isn't robust or healthy. ISM went a little negative this week. So that's what's going to dictate 2023. I just want to point out real quickly, Larry, something Jim said before the break was fascinating, and he was so right. But, I mean, all of us need to appreciate the irony. He said that yesterday the wage number and the employment number came out so strong and so good that markets tanked. And then as we looked under the hood, we found out, oh, no, the way the employment number wasn't as good as we thought so that the markets could rally. Okay, this is just totally unacceptable <laughs> that, that, that up is down and down is up mm. because of how dependent we are on the Fed in our markets and our economy. Uh, David, I was just – you complimented me, and I was just getting ready to bash you on something. Now I feel terribly Oh, guilty. go ahead. Uh, do go ahead. Don't, res- don't restrain yourself. Never restrain when yourself. Said, when he said they broke it. Absolutely. Talking about a housing market. They should fix it. That's where I get scared. When the government comes in to fix things, the Federal Reserve particularly, everything to them looks like a nail because all they have is a hammer. I wish, and I know that this is a ridiculous wish, but I wish they would just get out of the way. Are the, is the Fed too tight right now? The question, I say yes. And if someone, if one yeah. of you guys disagree with me, I'd say, well, twos to tens traded at negative 78 basis points. So the market seems to agree that the Fed is too oh, tight Jim, right now. Jim, Jim, Jim. You're right. You're right. I didn't mean. I don't mean that the Fed should be trying to fix things. What I meant is that that's one element of their policy that will be fixed is housing. Of course. Of course. But I do think I do think they're too tight. And I also think uh, even apart from high mortgage rates, the cure for high prices with housing was high prices. Right. We Amen. are just seeing affordability kick in. 
So I agree with you, and my language may not have indicated such. <laughs> I, was, I knew you you weren't. I was just kidding you. Well, yeah. actually, um, Jim Urio, Jay Powell wakes up every morning and says, I've got to get the unemployment rate higher. 3.7% Three, yeah. unemployment is a terrible number. Way too many people are working. And in order to conquer inflation, I've got to get the unemployment rate to 5% or 6%. That's what Larry Summers says. That's what Jason Furman says. By the way, Austin Goolsby, who is a good friend of mine, now they're going to be the president of the Chicago Fed. That's what Austin would say. Let's get that unemployment rate up. Not produce more goods or produce more oil and gas or create incentives to invest or work, but to drive up the unemployment rate. I mean, is, it, is that not day, what he's going to do? Headline. Yeah, it's like a dystopian nightmare that we're living in. <laughs> you know, the way, the way he says it, he goes, we want to create slack in the labor yeah, market. And slack. those words make it like so distant, like slack. It's like uh, Scott Shelley always says that the Fed is in this ivory tower. They're seeing the, the grass burn on the ground, and they have no idea what it would be like when you're in the middle of the flames. And when he's talking about we're going to feel pain, he doesn't mean his own pain. And I have no problem with the guy. I think he's done a poor job, but he seems like a nice fellow. I'm not trying he to He is a nice fellow, but he's yeah, done a terrible job. He's done a poor job. And I think he doesn't even understand what it means when people are losing jobs. Yeah, great slack in the labor market. Like it's some formula on a page. To me, that just I mean, again, that's what keeps me up at night. When he gets up in the morning... Mr. Powell says, I want to empty out Jim Urio's restaurants. That's right? <laughs> basically what Oddly, my, my motivation <laughs> is opposite. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I get that. Good. So, Dave Bonson, be all this as it may. By the way, the inverted curve from the three-month bill to the 10-year note, which is the old Fed, Federal Reserve Bank of New York model, which has a very good forecasting record is screaming recession. I mean, that's just kind of what the history of that model shows. But I want to know, are you still buying the dividend stocks? Is that the best play? Well, it certainly is. And one of the big reasons is that when you focus on long-term investing results of growing cash flows, then you get to be more agnostic about price volatility. All the stuff we're talking about, to me, is going to create more volatility in markets. And for a dividend growth investor who's accumulating like I am, that volatility helps me. For a dividend investor who is withdrawing, then it doesn't hurt them. They, they're sort of agnostic. They keep getting a growing form of cash flows. You look at the great dividend growers this year, it's not just that our dividend growth portfolio is up 8% on the year in a really, really bad year, because we'll have bad years too, Larry. I'm not talking about our portfolio right now. I'm making the point about dividend growth. It's that over 60% of the names in the portfolio are up because of that reason. The Merck's and the McDonald's and the Johnson Johnson's and Procter Gamble's, Pepsi's, these companies benefit with their pricing power. So as we go into 2023, I want names like that. They're more defensive. There's going to come a time where guys like Jim, who are really good traders, they're going to catch a bid with some higher beta, higher volatility stuff, and I'm not going to. And I'll live with that. But for the dividend growth right now, I think you're going to get a great return and not have nearly the same volatility. And, Jim Urio, the dollar is falling. Dollar's actually falling a fair piece, 6 7 8%. So I want to ask you whether you're going to buy back commodities. 
Uh, oh, I, uh, October 13th at the New Orleans Investment Conference, I gave a big speech about how copper was the play going forward. And I believed it was because the dollar was going to fall as the Fed started to come to their pause point or whatever. I thought rates would stabilize, and I thought China would end its COVID mitigation strategies. That didn't happen, the third part, and copper has still screamed. Um, so I still think, for me, that's the play. I've put on a bunch of um, you know synthetic long exposure to copper over the last – uh, the reason I say it that way is because if I say I'm long copper, I'm technically not long copper. I'm just long through options and things like that. But And I think uh, copper and silver, as the dollar gets weaker, I think are going to do very, very well. I, I don't know as much about gold, and I know that makes you happy. You don't really love the gold trade as much. But I think both gold and silver are going to benefit a little bit from the, uh, the crypto destruction. Yeah, crypto destruction. Thank you, fellas. David Bonson of the Bonson Group and Jim Murio of TJM Institutional Services. And Jay Powell, who wakes up in the morning wanting to vacate Mr. Urio's restaurants. It's a tragedy, a human tragedy, the Grinch who stole Christmas. I'm Kudlow. We'll be back with some money in politics. John Fund and Steve Moore right after this. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow, and I am here with John Fund, National Review National Affairs reporter and... Unleash Prosperity Hotline, and his book is called Our Broken Elections, How the Left Changed the Way You Vote. Boy, is that true. And Steve Moore from Freedom Works and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity and the Heritage Foundation, and his book, Godzilla, How the Relentless Growth of Government is Devouring Our Economy. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, so, John Fund, the information is out. Elon Musk has released... I think it's the first of several releases, and it turns out the Twitter staff or part of the Twitter staff, they were suppressing the Hunter Biden laptop. They did it on purpose. They were exhorted to do it by various Democratic big shots, the FBI, and it's a crazy story, but I give high marks to Elon Musk. What does this stuff mean, John Fun? How do you read this? I think Elon Musk's protective detail is going to have to be increased. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's going to issue more, too. This is. I think there's a lot more where this came from. Uh, in for a dime, in for a Musk dollar. Mm. Uh, this is, I have to say, you know, there are two kinds of stories out there, ones that, surpri- that uh, surprise you and teach you something new and you really should learn about you know what, what they te- what they have to teach you, and the others are ones that conflict, completely confirm your existing belief structure. And I have to say, this completely confirms everything we thought about how corrupt the FBI has become. After all, the lead counsel for Twitter was a former FBI official. Yep. Yep. Uh, this is called a collaboration. This is called regulatory capture. This is called the alliance between big tech and the government. And I'm all in favor of private companies being able to do what they want. And I'm all in favor of private companies making their own decisions, but not if they are in an unholy alliance with the government. And we have to get to the bottom of this as quickly as possible. This is an – I mean, now we know why everybody was so angry at Elon Musk buying Twitter. It wasn't because they thought he was going to destroy the platform. It was they thought he was going to reveal all of the secrets. Yeah, you know, um, 
Steve Moore, I, Monica Crowley said last night on the TV show, she said, having this in, getting this information out about suppressing Hunter Biden's laptop and whatever else they've suppressed is worth $44 billion right there just to have this information in the bloodstream. And the question is, as John said, I mean, this James Baker was their top lawyer. He was an ex-FBI guy. I mean, it is some sense, Steve Moore, our worst nightmare, the collusion of big government uh, on the left, uh, the tech community on the left, and they did stifle and suppress free speech and a very important pre-election story. I mean, it's our worst nightmare. Yeah, Larry. Uh, you know, I'm at uh, Mar-a-Lago today. I saw the president, President Trump, yesterday, and he gave a speech, and he was talking about this kind of miscarriage of justice and how abused he has been. I mean, there's no president in American history who's been more abused by the judicial in the legal system than Donald Trump. And, you know, it's just the unfairness of this and his um, the treatment of Trump by by the Justice Department. It, it's it's an even bigger story than you guys are talking about, because it means you can't trust the justice system anymore in the United States. And that's a point Trump made. And, you know, it's just harder and harder to get a fair hearing um, in in Washington in the court system if you are a conservative. John Fon, speculate for me. How does this figure into the 2024 race? I mean, Steve Moore is, you know, mentioning Trump's views. Trump, of course, uh, has always had this grievance. It turns out his grievance is true. Right. I don't know about the election denial part, but certainly this grievance Uh, I don't know whether if this information had come out, it would have changed the outcome in 2020. I don't know. Some polls say it would have. We have no way of knowing. Right. Because, of course, they would have been, you know, the entire debate situation would have changed. Uh, The last debate, by the way, was held after the New York Post revelation. So the whole tenor of that debate would would have been different. And who knows what would have happened? We do know this. Clearly, Trump's base support is going to be furious. It will have everything that they feared confirmed. They will be ginned up. Uh, There will be a lot of people who say it's time to, um, well, remember what happened with Grover Cleveland 140 years ago. He lost the presidency and he came back and he won it. So it can be done. However, at the same time, uh, Donald Trump faces a possible indictment over the National Archives material. Mm -hmm. And the problem he has there, Larry, is He's confessed. In the true social uh, media tweet the other day, uh, he said, I not only took the documents, I did it consciously, and you should prosecute the previous presidents who took documents from the White House when they left office. And we now have people who have worked for Donald Trump go to the FBI and say, yeah, the president ordered us to do this, take this, put this in a box, and not turn it back. So I think the, it's inevitable that Donald Trump is going to be indicted. The, the, the so, court decision on Friday basically saying the special master is gone, the, F, the Justice Department can do anything at once in terms of investigation, basically confirms he'll be indicted. He'll go before a D.C. jury, and you know what that means. So, so can I just make one more point about the Twitter story, though? And that is um, also who else is culpable here, the media? Larry, I mean, where were the where were the the watchdogs in the media? Why why was it Elon Musk that had to uncover this story? <laughs> Did the media have no interest in you know this is Watergate, epic, and the the media was asleep. 
media didn't even bother to investigate. No, the media wasn't it, right? asleep. It was it was were... in bed with the FBI. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's a scary, scary thing. The mainstream media was totally corrupt. And two years later, two years later, New York Times and the Washington Post said, yeah, whoops, it was real. It wasn't a hoax. It was real. Confirmed by CBS just a couple of weeks ago because they wanted to, they wanted to basically uh, get ahead of the story. Oh, how wonderful. It's confirmed by. But the other part of this, gentlemen, the, the role of the CIA and the intel agencies. Remember yeah. John Brennan yep. and yep. this guy Clapper? Clapper. Clapper, who has lied through his teeth any number of occasions before congressional committees. I mean, what, Biden lined up 50 of these jerks, and they all said it was a Russian hoax or, uh, you know, um, uh, anyway. Can I just say one thing about that? You know, you may recall in 2017 and 2018, I did my penance, and I was with CNN. And I guarantee you could go, go back and look. Almost every single evening, John Fund, it was Clapper and Brennan. Making their That's false right. claims over right. and over and over again. And when they took a vacation, they had Adam Schiff on to replace them. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this is just the first. I think there's a lot of other stuff that Musk is going to release on many other issues where conservative speech was suppressed. I mean, I think this is just the first tranche. And the liberals, Steve Moore, liberals are going crazy over this. Well, going here's cra- the challenge we should have, Larry. Now that we know what Twitter was doing, and by the way, Twitter apparently did this without even the CEO knowing. Right. I mean, this, right. this was the woke <laughs> right. staff uh, at the executive level doing this. So here's what, here's what the challenge should be. You go to Google. You go to YouTube. You go mm-hmm. to Facebook. Yeah. And you say, we need your records. And if you don't turn them over publicly – the House committee is going to subpoena them, and we're finally going to see, did you do the same things Twitter did? And if you didn't, prove it. Well, isn't that what uh, Jim Jordan's going to do? Well, yes, but I think we should go. I think we shouldn't wait for that. That'll take months to assemble. I think we need to go to the media and say this is a crisis of confidence. There's a crisis of legitimacy here. You owe your customer base. You owe the American people. Tell us what exactly you did, because if you don't tell us, it's going to go far worse for you if it's dragged out of you by subpoena. What's, uh, Steve Moore, I know it's speculative, but the cat's out of the bag. The Hunter Biden computer stuff was true, as we've known for a long time. Tony Bobolinsky, you have um, this situation where Biden is president. His son is still on the loose. Uh, some of these uh, investment groups from the Ukraine and China are still operating. Um, there's embezzlement here. Uh, you know, there's influence peddling here. I mean, the speculation is almost endless. Joe Biden's role in this, maybe Joe Biden, you know, who followed is, the money. He may still be getting money from these funds, for heaven's sakes. Who is Mr. Yeah, Big? I, yeah, I just have one comment on that, and that plays up what John Fun was just saying. I think maybe they are uh, getting ready to indict the wrong president. Yes, right. Think about that. Follow the money. I mean, no one knows where these monies went when he was out of office. I'm talking about the father now. The father's more important to me than the son in this. Whether those monies were invested, uh, given to him while he was out of office, some of that stuff still paying expenses now that he's in office, we don't know that. It's almost an endless discussion. And, and Larry, 
nights ago, or last night even, there was a state dinner at the White House for the French president. Mm -hmm. Who was front and center at one of the head tables? Hunter Biden. What kind of signals does that send to the Justice Department and Attorney General Merrick Garland? If you're going to indict Hunter Biden, it better be on some piddling tax violations or the fact that he didn't fill out the firearms registration form properly. It better not be anything bigger than that, because this president and his son are glued to each other, and they are – I mean, I think this is an impossible situation for the Justice Department. No, it's not. They're going to do the bidding of the president. No, impossible for them to do the right thing. Oh, that? yes, that is absolutely the case. So, so I think the que- that leads to the question, and I think John is more an expert on this than I am, is you know, you, you're not going to get justice from this Justice Department. So can some of these state attorney generals – you know, intervene because we've seen this problem before. We saw it under Bill Clinton. They're not going to investigate their own president. So, you know, I, I, I just wonder whether justice can be served here. Wow, that's a good question. It's a difficult question, but the states uh, don't have the jurisdiction. Look, I think uh, January 3rd, Jim Jordan, who's the other one? Comer from Kentucky? Right. Yes. Yep. They have to begin. I mean, Art Laffer doesn't want him to do it, but I think they got to do it. Art wants to focus only on the economy. I want him to focus only on the economy. The economy should be seventy percent. But but they have got to go into this. They have got to dig into this in their oversight responsibility. And by the way, it's not only an oversight of corruption; it's a judiciary oversight because you're talking about the Justice Department, right? Jim Jordan's going to be the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Think of that. Larry, I really believe that we're Americans and we can walk and chew gum at the same yes, time. Yes, that's right. I think so, too. I think so, too. And this this makes the – I was never a big fan of, of some of the uh, of the impeachment of Bill Clinton. And, but the, that, that was, those were petty crimes <laughs> compared <laughs> to what we're talking about here, right? Well, do we have to impeach Mayorkas, really? I mean, I know he's dumb. He lies. It's a catastrophe on the border – but does it rise to impeachment? What is it, high crimes and misdemeanors? As a practical matter, the Senate, of course, would never convict. Right. Frank, the House would never impeach because the Republican majority is going to be so small. So, look, on that, I say we move on and we basically declare that the Biden administration has called for open borders. Its actions yeah. uh, indicate that it wants open borders. Yeah. And it's up to the courts. And, by the way, they're, they're, I think they're moving towards basically saying to President Biden, I mean, the, the, the argument last last week in the Supreme Court was absolutely remarkable, Larry. John Roberts actually got upset and angry, and that's hard to do for John Roberts. Mm. <laughs> and he actually said, excuse me, are you trying to say when the law says shall, that means maybe? Are you actually trying to say that to us? Mm. And the Solicitor General of the United States and the Justice Department said, yes, that's what I'm trying to say. All right, let us take a break. Uh, the other side of the break, I want to talk about two things. Number one, a lame duck spending binge, and number two, the fate of Herschel Walker. We're here with John Fund and Steve Moore. I'm Cudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Cudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We are talking money and politics with John Fund, National Review, and the Committee to Unleash Prosperity Hotline, which, by the way, is the best product out there. 
and uh, my buddy Steve Moore from Freedom Works and Heritage Foundation and also the Committee to Unleash Prosperity. Steve Moore, is there going to be a lame duck spending binge by these desperate Democrats who are losing the House? Uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal reported on this the other day, and their numbers were frightening about the uh, all the gravy that they want to pour on this uh, already, um, you know, escalated uh, and debt-ridden federal budget. Uh, it can't happen if Republicans don't allow it to happen. Uh, they still have, you know, a sort of veto in the in the United States Senate. So, uh, but we have to be on guard on this. You know, the Republicans could save $160 billion out of the budget by simply just not waiving the budget rules and requiring the Democrats to, to cut. You know, they're they're over what are called the pay-as-you-go mm-hmm. uh, spending limits. And, and I'm very much in favor of next week Republicans saying, we're not going to waive the budget rules. You, you Democrats are going to have to find ways to get the budget down or there would be an automatic across-the-board spending cut. Look, when you have a, a $6 trillion budget and you have a new report out just this week that showed massive fraud in uh, which program was it? The um, Earned income tax credit? The, yeah, they have the child credit. Child tax credit. The, all the, yeah, and then you've got the, all the um, fraud in the unemployment benefit and all those programs. They could easily find that amount of money to save. Name one, one Republican, Steve, who said we should uphold the budget caps. Just give me one name publicly. Name one. You're right. <laughs> I, I don't have enough time. The show's going to run out. You're going to have to think about six hours for that. And, right. And you're, and you're not going to get anybody. Now, John, John Fund on this subject, um, uh, the threat of an Rand Paul. Rand Paul would probably. <laughs> no, he would. He would. I just haven't heard it said. And speaking of the Senate, John Fund, Mitch McConnell seems to be in favor of an omnibus spending bill for the next year, which will be spending run wild. No regular order. No hearings. No nothing. Four people with their senior staff in a smoke-filled dark room in the basement of the Capitol making decisions on a $6 trillion budget that will run wild. This is the Republican Senate leader, John Fund. Can I get a comment from you on this? <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's deplorable. Um, not only uh, were, would our founders be profoundly disappointed that we have basically uh, another form of monarchy, which is four men in a room right. making all the decisions, but even the budget makers of the 1980s when you were in Washington with Ronald Reagan would be shocked that the entire Congress had abdicated its responsibility, abdicated it and transferred it to the administrative state, the regulatory agencies, and four men in a room. This is not democracy. This is basically ruled by a small elite. McCarthy and, and McConnell should say we will not enter this room. How about mm-hmm. that? Even better than the spending caps, we will not play. But they don't. I don't know. Maybe, maybe Kevin would. I mean, Mitch McConnell is indicating he's going to go along with it for a lot of reasons, blah, 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 blah. Unless he's pressured the other way. And, you know, if McConnell is a wily guy, uh, this may be a marker, you know, stop me before I, before I retreat again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, this is an absolute travesty. No regular order, Steve Moore. No witnesses, right? No public accountability and transparency. 
nobody to argue whether the spending levels are correct or whether the policies are correct. I mean, the Democrats, by the way, want to expand the child tax credit, make it permanent, no work rules, right, no work requirements. That's about a, a trillion and a half dollars over the next 10 years. I mean, this is GOP. Look, Laffer is right. Where's the Republican message that they're going to be stewards of a prosperous economy if right after the election they you know, continue the same old game? Republicans spend, Democrats spend. Yeah, this is the best way to demoralize Republicans coming up to the 2024 election. I mean, the, the question I was always asked in the past year when I was talking to, you know, conservative and Republican audiences, you know, when I talk about the runaway spending under Biden, people at first hand would go up, well, are Republicans going to do anything about it? Right. You know, well, right. I can't guarantee they will, but they better. Now, there is something you said you're infuriated. By the way, a lot of people probably doesn't, don't know what regular order means. What you're basically saying is we're not going to have the budget on automatic pilot. Mm-hmm. We're actually going to make decisions about how we spend the money and not just let, you know, the spending go well, on. Well, 12, 12 appropriation bills. Each one has a subcommittee. They're supposed to hold hearings with witnesses from the liberals and the conservatives and hash it out in full public view. By the way, there's no budget resolution. You're supposed to have a joint congressional budget resolution. They don't do that anymore. Which means there's no budget. Right. (laughs) That is correct. Imagine a company or household saying we're going to spend whatever we want. I mean, they did one in the House, Steve, but they've never done one in the Senate. Never. I mean, it's just. And then, a, of course, you have the added something I think is monumentally stupid is that the Republicans now want to bring earmarks back, which is. Oh, I love that. How about that? Right off the top. Let's bring back uh, but, earmarks. Did you see what the vote was in the House among the Republicans? 150 to 50 <laughs> voted to bring back pork barrel spending. It's a terrific idea. It really sends a great signal. <laughs> it really sends a great signal. John Fun, last last minute or two here. Herschel Walker versus Raphael Warnock. The polls show an average lead of about two and a half points for Warnock. That's within the margin of error. I'd have to say Warnock is the favorite. He has outspent Herschel Walker by about four to one. However, God, it's all about the one? turnout. Four to one. It's all oh about the turnout. God. Well, what about the turnout? Mail-in ballots. Barack Obama is down there bringing out a big turnout. How about it? You know, these kind of spending reversals that we're talking about that Steve mentioned certainly do not help turnout because they demoralize the base, just like certain things demoralize the base the first time we lost that Georgia Senate race. So I I think that turnout is important. It's not over, but I'd have to give Warnock the favorite. Yeah, well, I think that's right. You know, Steve Moore, Newt Gingrich just wrote a piece saying, stop underestimating Joe Biden. Think about that. Biden has kind of had his way with us. I mean, for all the inflation, the recession, the border, the crime. I mean, Newt is saying do not underestimate Biden. I mean, it's a very interesting point of view. I'll give you the last word. Well, um, you know, look, I, 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 I'd love to see a rematch in 2024. I don't know what, you know, if Biden's going to run. I don't know what's going to happen with Trump. But I think Trump would take him if he had him again. All right. 
Steve Moore, thank you. John Fun, thank you, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's been a great pleasure, and we will be back next weekend.